Today is uh, often on this weekend, um, you know, I like to say something about Dr. Martin Luther King. I, I don't always like to celebrate uh, national holidays here in church um, because we as Christians kind of go by a different calendar and we have really special holidays that we celebrate. And often our holidays in our nation aren't necessarily pointing towards uh, Jesus' gospel-centered values that we have here at our church. Um, but Dr. King is, is really become uh, somebody to me that has been like a, a distant mentor. So obviously, I never knew the man, um, but he's just really influenced my life. And he was a complicated man. He was not perfect, um, but there was an essence to what he was about and what he stood for um, that was beautiful. I want to recommend a, a book that I read this year. It uh, came out, I think, this past year. Um, it's called King, A Life. It's really good. Um, I love biographies, and this is one of the best that I've read. But in that book, as I was reading through it and thinking about the legacy of Dr. King, like one thing that just struck me is just how steadfast he was and how committed he was to the mission that God had given him. Later in, in Dr. King's life, you all may not realize this, but now like everybody celebrates Dr. King and everybody loves Dr. King. But towards the end of his life, he was despised by a lot of people. Like his popularity, they, they judged these things towards the end of his life, and, and, and frankly, most people disapproved of him towards the end of his life. White people and black people had lots of problems with Dr. King towards the end of his life. Many people just thought he was going too far. There was a point where he started talking about the Vietnam War a lot because he recognized that if he's going to talk about peace here at home, if he's going to talk about taking care of people here in America, then he also has to be concerned about people on the opposite ends of the world. If he's going to talk about the violence that we do to one another, then he needed to talk about the violence that is inflicted by this nation on other nations. And so he started to go really hard on the Vietnam War. And, and a lot of people within his own circles told him he needed to stop doing that. But he refused. And he continued to talk about it. And his popularity tanked and tanked and tanked and tanked. Another thing he started talking about was poverty. Um, because he started out just talking about civil rights, mostly about racism, which is important, but he started to see that all these things are connected. And he started talking about poverty a lot more and how we need to not only care for one group of people, but we need to lift everybody up from the bottom. And when he started talking about economic justice and different things like that, he started advocating for things like a universal basic income for all people here in America. And a lot of people were like, no, nah, we're not talking about that kind of stuff. And Dr. King's popularity continued to go down. But Dr. King, there's this famous quote, and I don't have the words in front of me, but he basically says, like, he's like, God has called me to love the poor. God has called me to love these folks and walk with them. And he's like, if it means walking to my death with them, then so be it. I'll do it. And ultimately know what happened to Dr. King. He ultimately marched to his death because he stood in solidarity with other people. And his influence upon this nation is wonderful though I would encourage you to really dig a little deeper because the, the portrayal of Dr. King that we often get is a, a sanitized version. Um, I read a quote, Harry Belafonte said once that, that in the history books we never get to read about the radical heroes. <laughs> we only read stories that kind of sanitize the versions of the people that we uh, aspire to, to be like. And so I encourage you to really try to dig in and encounter the radical king because I think he helps us to become more like Jesus. Today, um, I want to share, I want to encourage you today before I preach to look at the uh, announcements. Um, we've got some important things coming up. One thing we have coming up is something called Curated Conversations, and it's something that we've done in the past during the pandemic. Um, some folks, uh, it was kind of one of their first introductions to different folks in the church. 
Um, if you're an introvert like me and you struggle with small talk, going to a party is kind of hard for me because I'm like, I don't know what to talk to these people about, you know. Um, if you have a hard time with that kind of thing, this is a really good opportunity to come because we're going to have questions and things for you to talk about in small groups. And so you don't have to come and just chit-chat. Um, there's going to be questions to help you go a little deeper. And so if you're wanting to get to know other people at the church, you want to make friends, you're wanting to reach out, this is a really good opportunity. Look in the announcements. Um, it's coming up at the end of this month. It'll be before church. And then also we have an Embrace Orientation Lunch, which is something we've done um, in the past where if you want to know more about Embrace, you want to get to know folks, you want to hear more about our ministries, then you can stay after for lunch, and that'll be in February. And you're going to meet a lot of folks and hear more about our church. And we'll also talk about membership at that gathering if you're interested in becoming a member. So this morning, uh, what I want to do for my sermon is I'm going to introduce uh, something new. You know, for the past few years... I have said something very similar at the beginning of the year, and I'm going to say it again this year because I feel compelled to say it. 2024 is going to be a really hard year. Does it, do you all agree with me that this year is probably going to be a tough year? We've got a lot of things coming this year that are going to be challenging. Um, we have a lot of challenges that we're facing as a nation, as a community, as a church, as a denomination. There's a lot that's going to happen this year that is going to bring lots and lots of challenges into our lives. As Rick reminded us last year, storms will come. We're talking, we're going to get hit by literal storms. That's going to happen. But there's also going to be some severe storms of life that are going to have the potential to leave us feeling rattled and broken. And how are we going to navigate the chaos of this new year? How are we going to stay grounded? How are we going to spread love and light as the darkness overwhelms us? How are we going to make tough decisions and stay committed to each other through uncertainty and discomfort? You know, the, the scriptures talk a lot, uh, or they talk in the New Testament about putting the armor of God on, and I've always thought that's kind of interesting imagery. Um, and, and I don't always love, like, the battle imagery, but life does feel like a battle sometimes, right? And so it talks about putting the armor of God on so that we can be fortified and grounded and strong. And one way at Embrace, we try to stay fortified and grounded is through studying the scriptures, to getting out our Bibles and reading it and studying it and engaging God through these sacred scriptures. A few years ago, we spent a good amount of time in the Gospel of Mark. And through that sermon series, I grew to love the Gospel of Mark even more than I did before. It's become one of my favorite books in the Bible. And so what we're going to do this year is we're going to revisit Mark again for the first part of the year. And we're going to do that all the way up until Easter. And then after Easter, we're actually going to spend the rest of the year in one book of the Bible. We're going to be in the book of Acts after that. And I haven't studied the book of Acts in a long time, and I'm really excited about it. So we're going to spend 34 weeks in the book of Acts. Um, so we got Mark and Acts this year, and I'm, I'm really excited. So the Gospel of Mark is a book I really love. In seminary, it was the first book I encountered when I was doing like Bible study in seminary. I took a class with a professor named Dr. Joe Donjel. And it was in an inductive Bible study class. And through that class on Mark, um, I just grew to like, love the Bible so much more. He helped bring the scriptures alive to me in a way that no other professor had ever done. I remember our first assignment we had in the class. He said, I want you to go home, get out your Bible, and read the Gospel of Mark aloud in one sitting from start to finish. It was like 16 chapters. It is the shortest uh, gospel in the Bible, so it wasn't super long. But it took a couple hours to get through it, and we had to read it aloud in one sitting, and he said, I want you to do it two times. And it was really cool to like read it all 
and kind of hear myself reading it and see kind of how the whole story unfolds. And if you have time during this series, I encourage you all to do that yourselves. You can get in a small group. If you're in a small group, y'all can decide, let's take one meeting. We're just going to take turns and read a chapter and go through the whole gospel of Mark aloud. I think it would be really beneficial for you all. But the good thing is it is the shortest gospel in the Bible. Mark is very concise in the way he talks about Jesus' life. And, and it's a wonderful, um, I think, uh, gospel for us to engage. Mark is all about action. Uh, you could say the gospel of John, there's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of like heady kind of teaching and deep spiritual teaching and stuff. The gospel of Mark it doesn't have much of that at all. It's like about action. It's like Jesus going from one thing to another. His actions, the disciples, other folks. So maybe that's one reason I like it because it's fast moving. It's easy to kind of get through. And so I recommend Mark to folks as like a good starting point. If you're like, I want to read the Bible, like start with Mark. You'll get through it. It's not too hard. Um, and you just pay attention to what happens in this story. So we're going to be Mark, in Mark until Easter. We're going to dig in a little more each week, uncovering kind of more meaning and context and purpose. Mark is a wonderful gospel, I think, for us to study today in this unprecedented time we're living in. And so are you all ready to kind of go on a journey in Mark together? Um, should be fun. So one thing uh, we need to remember when we read a story like this one is there's two worlds represented in the story. And Tom, you can throw this one on the screen. First is the world that Mark narrates about Jesus and also the world in which Mark lived. Let me explain what I mean. So Mark's going to tell stories, and, and that's like about Jesus and when he lived, which was, you know, around A.D. 30. However, Mark probably didn't write his gospel until around A.D. 65, A.D. 70, somewhere around that time. And so Mark was writing this story about 30 years or more after it all happened. And so you have what happened during Jesus' time, but also when Mark wrote this story, there were things going on in his community that propelled him to want to put this story into writing. So I want to focus just a little bit about Mark's world. Mark wrote this around A.D. 66 to A.D. 70, and it was during a Jewish uprising and, and then kind of an intense Roman backlash. So you can imagine this marginal group of Jews, if they're going to rise up against the Roman Empire violently, then you know, there's going to be a mighty backlash by the Roman government. And so Jesus had died many years earlier. There were stories of Jesus being told through this oral tradition, and for some reason, Mark decided he wanted to cement these stories in writing. One of the best questions you can ask when you read the Bible and want to understand it is, why did the author decide to write this story down? Why did the author decide to write this down? Because they didn't write many stories down during that time. Because paper, it was hard to come by. They didn't have printing presses like we do. A lot of people couldn't read. And so they told stories aloud. But why did Mark decide he needed to get it down in writing? In Mark's world, there was intense division and conflict and violence between the Jewish people and the Romans. Many competing factions of Jews were actually trying to vie for power in that area to try to be on top. There were also stirrings of uprising and revolution against the Romans. There were these bandits that were very common throughout the land. They were kind of like Robin Hood types who would go and, and kind of rob from the wealthy to try to help disseminate among the poor. There were people like the Jewish Sicarii, which were apparently really good with knives, and there were warriors, and they would actually go around and assassinate people um, in crowds, and no one would even realize it's happening. And there was this violent resistance. There was a lot of paranoia in the land. So during this tumultuous time, 
there were traveling preachers who would go around the land and they would share stories about Jesus. And perhaps they would even adjust these stories to kind of fit their particular political outlook to kind of uphold whatever agenda they might have had. So in these confusing and chaotic times, Mark decided he needed to get this story written down in writing. Perhaps Mark heard these kind of oral traditions that were going around, and Mark's like, hey, we need to document this story. We need to preserve these stories of Jesus. They're just too important. Like I said, not many people wrote down stories like this. It was expensive. It was not easily accessible among the common people who couldn't read. But Mark wrote it down anyway. And when he wrote it down, he wrote it not just to preserve it, but I believe Mark wanted this story to challenge and teach people in his own context for for generations to come. Because he wanted folks to figure out how they can follow Jesus in their current context. Not just for people then, but for us even today. And so here's what I believe in Mark's purpose for writing this down. Tom, you can put this up there. It's specific and simple. Inspire and teach people how to follow Jesus. I believe this was what Mark wanted to do with this gospel. He wanted people to know how to follow the way of Jesus. He's not so concerned with heady thoughts or wise sayings on church doctrine or pontificating on what the cross means. There's a time and place for that but not in Mark's gospel. It is about the way a person lives their life. He wanted to challenge people to be radical disciples of Jesus in their day-to-day lives. Scholar uh, Ched Myers has appropriately given a subtitle to Mark. Tom, you can put this one up. A manifesto for Christian discipleship is what he calls it. And really, a manifesto is kind of a public declaration. It's like putting it out there. Here's my manifesto for all to read on what I believe the life of Jesus ought to look like. If you want to know how to follow Jesus in a world of lies and confusion and violence and propaganda and oppression and domination, read the story of Mark. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to read this story. We're going to study this story. We're going to look at the world of Mark so that we can better understand how we can become better disciples and how we can follow Jesus today. Now, I want to offer in this introduction three distinct kind of subplots in Mark that we're going to see come up over and over again. You have the overarching narrative of Jesus' life, but there's three things that keep coming up over and over and over again in Mark, and it'll help us understand better how to make sense of this book. So the first one is Jesus' creation of a new community. He created this new community of people by calling disciples. If you know the story of Jesus, he goes and he says, hey, come follow me. And then the disciples come follow him. And he creates this tight-knit of community of people who were his disciples and followers. And there were many others than just the 12 who were followers of Jesus. And throughout the book, you're going to see Jesus calling disciples, teaching disciples, correcting disciples, being let down by the disciples. The disciples are a big part of this book. He spends time with them. He develops close relationships with them. He does important work with them. You're going to see at the end, they profoundly, miserably fail Jesus at the end of the story. And even throughout it, they miss the mark over and over and over again. These are very relatable people. The disciples are part of this narrative. Jesus is creation of a new community. The second uh, subplot in this book is Jesus' mission to the crowds. Now, you'll see the crowds in Mark are almost like their own character. 
The crowds are everywhere in Mark. The crowds follow Jesus at times. They abandon Jesus at times. The crowds demand things of Jesus. The crowds are amazed by Jesus. The crowds are healed to and ministered, or healed by and ministered to by Jesus. Mark mentions the crowds 38 times in his gospel, over and over and over again. And they represent this like teeming mass of people. And in Mark, they're mostly poor folks. They're people who are often oppressed. And Jesus shows them compassion. He, he feeds them. He helps them. He teaches them. He, he exercises demons from them. But ultimately, at the end, we see the crowds, they, they pretty much reject Jesus. And you'll see a story at the end where they choose to release Barabbas instead of Jesus at the end. The crowds are kind of fickle. Just like today, the crowds can be very fickle. In one moment, the crowds can love you, and the next minute, they can hate you, right? It's true in Jesus' story also. But Jesus was with the crowds. The third group, or the third subplot of the story, is Jesus' confrontation with the powers and the authorities. And Jesus has a lot of conflict with people who are in authority in the book of Mark. And in Mark, it was specifically against some Jewish leaders in that area. Not that all Jewish leaders were, were corrupt, but there were some that Jesus had a lot of problems with. These are folks like the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians, the Sadducees. You're going to see them come up over and over and over again. And you're going to see these religious and political leaders consistently oppressing lots of folks while taking care of the elite few. And Jesus had a lot of conflicts with them throughout the gospel. There's a lot of conflict and confrontation. Mark is not like a, a book where everybody just gets along. Jesus has a lot of conflict with people. And it's mostly with the people who are in authority who were hurting others. So we have stories of Jesus' intimate relationship with his disciples, his mission to the crowds, and his conflict with the authorities. So remember this, disciples, crowds, authorities. It's going to come up over and over and over again. Disciples and crowds and authorities. And it will help us understand what we're dealing with when we get into all these stories in Mark. So if you want to live a life shaped by Jesus then we need to follow his example, okay? And so if we're going to follow his example, we need these aspects in our lives also, I believe, if we're going to discern how to live like him. And so I want to offer up three questions that this guy, Reverend Sam Wells, that I'm going to borrow from him that are going to help us think through how we can engage these three different things in our own lives. So like Jesus first, I believe we need to be part of a group of disciples, like those first disciples, I believe we are called to diverse, intimate relationships of trust, accountability, sharing, and shared mission. Now, this is often hard to find, but I think many of us, you know, we may have friends that we hang out with and spend time with, but are we in close relationship with other disciples of Jesus who are seeking to follow Christ, who take the relationship to Jesus seriously, who are wanting to follow after Christ in their day-to-day -day lives? You know, I remember in my teens and early 20s, I, I had this thought, I was like, you know, like all my friends and I do when we're together is just goof off and make fun of each other and play. We don't do anything else. There's nothing deep here. And I, I was really longing for something more, right? And I wonder, do you have close relationships with other serious-minded disciples who are seeking to, to follow God in their day-to-day -day lives? Perhaps many of our issues right now are because so many church people don't have like accountable close relationships with other serious-minded Christians. So ask yourself the question, am I part of a group of disciples in any meaningful sense?
Am I part of a group of disciples? The second thing, like Jesus, we need to be with the crowds by building friendships across boundaries, especially, I believe, with the poor, with people who are pushed to the margins, with people who are experiencing oppression. Jesus intentionally built relationships with people and reached out to people who were different than him. And he particularly reached out to folks who were often pushed to the margins. Like Jesus' time, we have clear boundaries in our culture about who we ought to be around and who we ought to spend time with. Many people, I think, lack empathy and compassion for others because they have no relationships with people who are different than them. They don't have those relationships across boundaries and difference. There's power in proximity. There's power in being close. And embrace, the cool thing about our church is we've been able, historically, over the years, to be able to provide space for those kinds of friendships and relationships to form. And all churches ought to be those kinds of places. Often we find our churches just being a bunch of people who are all the same. And I don't believe that's what Jesus has called us to. So ask yourself this question. Do I have friendships with people very different from myself? And am I allowing those friendships to change me? So are you connected to a group of disciples in any meaningful sense? And then also, do you have friendships with people who are very different from you and allowing those friendships to change you? Got to have those disciples, those close people who are also serious about their faith, but also are you spending time with others and among the crowds? Finally, like Jesus, we need to confront the oppressive powers and authorities of our day. There are new versions today of the corrupt Pharisees and scribes and Herodians and Sadducees in our own context now. There are authorities and powers who lie to us with myths of domination and use their power to hurt others and to keep people in bondage. And sadly, the local church has even been an oppressive power at times. So many people have told me that they've come out of very oppressive and hurtful church environments. And if we're committed to the way of Jesus, then I believe it will lead to confrontation with people in power who are doing harm to others. Because we cannot just sit by and allow people who are in power to hurt other people and take advantage of the poor and the weak. Dr. Martin Luther King, who we've been talking about this morning just a little bit, and all the folks who are part of the freedom movement are a testimony to that. They lived this out in such extreme ways where it actually ended up that many of them even lost their lives because they were willing to stand up for those who were hurting. So when we take stock of our relationship to the powerful, we need to ask ourselves, does the shape of my life reflect my longing to see God set people free, and do I challenge those who are keeping others in slavery? So we need to rediscover, I believe, the roots of our faith, which is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. When we go back to the root, we're going to encounter the radical Jesus. And when I say radical, don't be afraid of that word. To be radical means to the root of things, to the essence of things. So we're trying to get to the root and the essence of the beginnings of all of this, which is Jesus. And we can follow Jesus' example of building those accountable, mission-focused community who has friendships with the poor, challenging the powerful, and I believe that can lead to deeper discipleship if we're willing to follow him along his way. When Jesus called those first disciples, he was inviting them not to follow a list of rules or to believe a certain things. He was inviting them on an adventure, a discipleship adventure of leaving behind the old way of death and bondage and walking to a new way of life 
and freedom. And I believe we are still receiving that invitation from Jesus today. And so I want you all to remember those as we go through this series. The disciples, the crowds, and the authorities. And think about your own life. Do you have that intimate group of disciples that you're connected to, even if it's just one person who you can say, we're both serious about this and we're going to help one another in our faith? Are you among the crowds? Are you building relationships across boundaries with people who are different than you, particularly people who are being oppressed and hurt by the authorities? And finally, what's your relationship to the powerful? Do you have the courage to stand up and push against those things that are wrong? Are you willing to stand up and say, hey, these people are being hurt and it's not okay? And I'm going to do what I can to help those who are struggling. Mark's gospel spoke words of hope and challenge to its original audience of new struggling Christians. And I still think it's speaking to us today. So I hope you'll join me on this discipleship adventure as we continue to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.